You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How y'all doing this morning? Good. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tripp, um, and I almost said I'm one of the pastors here because I say that when I get up at our church in Atlanta, but that I can't just make myself a pastor of your church. I just showed up. Uh, <laughs> But it's good to be here with y'all, and it feels like home a little bit because I said this earlier. You know, I grew up in Dallas. I grew up in DeSoto, so it's good to be in the Metroplex. I don't think I knew that Midlothian existed when I lived here, but uh, it's good to know it exists now and good to be here to worship over God's word with you. Uh, let's pray, and we'll get started. God, we uh, come before you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Father, and we come before you and we pray a lot when we meet together, uh, God, and that's not because it's a good transition between things to do, Father, but it's because one of, it's one of the things you've commanded us to do, and it's a delight to do, Father. Uh, it's good because I know I'm not uh, eloquent enough and I'm not uh, smart enough to change anybody's heart, God. If anything uh, substantial is going to happen, we do really need your word and we really do need your spirit. So, Father, we pray you'd work in us now, God, and pray this would be a uh, good use of our time, God, that you'd speak to us in your word, Father. And um, we ask you this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I want to uh, start just by talking about stories. Um, I love stories of all kinds. I love uh, reading stories. I love uh, watching stories on TV shows. I love watching stories in movies. Uh, I have a friend who uh, likes movies, but he doesn't necessarily like good stories in the movies. He just likes movies in general. So if it's a movie that is terrible, uh, like that has no plot, that has no good character development, but there's just a lot of explosions and deaths, and he's happy with that. It's fine with him. He's like, that was a good movie. I'm like, no, it wasn't. There was no good story at all. I like a story. I like to hear about characters and get to know who they are and see what happens in their lives and these plot developments, and I like twists and turns. I really like stories. And I don't think that's unique to me. All of us like stories. What my kids want to do before they go to bed, they want to hear a story. They want to hear unending stories uh, forever and ever to extend their bedtime time. But uh, I get to be a good father and say, no, be quiet and go to sleep. But we all love stories. One of the ways I know you love stories is because you've probably already told a story today. Or this week, somebody may just ask you, hey, how was your week? And you start to tell them a story. You say, man, let me think back. Monday, I got up and I hated life, but I went to work anyway. And my boss was tripping as usual. And you begin to tell a story. You tell this sequence of events, stuff that happened to you. And we're always telling stories. Uh, this, this word, this Bible is a story about how God created humankind and how he saved us and he sent his son Jesus. I mean, we are always telling stories. It's always been a big part of how we communicate with each other. So I want to ask you this. If I asked you to tell me what your life story was, what would you say? Not just your story of how your week went and how your day's going, but if I asked you about your life story, what would you say it was? If you only got to pick a few bullet points, which ones would you choose? The text we're going to look at today that our brother just read so well uh, 
is going to show us that even though we're different people from different backgrounds and we have different particulars to our story, we essentially do have the same story. That if you're a believer in Jesus, there are some main bullet points that show up. So, for example, a friend of mine named John, he's Nigerian. His family went back to visit Nigeria. His dad was a pastor. He'd heard the gospel so many times. But something happened when they got robbed on the side of the road with the guns in their faces that he began to fear and to think about life in a new way. And all that gospel truth he thought of sunk in in a brand new way and he got saved. Uh, or there's a friend of mine who uh, he was he was in a gang and he was running across the street, got hit by a car and was unconscious, and a lady dragged him into her house, and then she took him to the hospital, and then he woke up in the hospital, and she told him about Jesus, and he got saved. That ain't my story. That's a story. But the, the bullet points are the same for every believer who knows Jesus. We were dead in our sin, but we were raised to new life by God in order to do good works. Those are the main bullet points of our stories. And that could be a way that you uh, answer the question, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who was dead in their sins, but was saved by grace and given new life so that they can do good works. And that's what we're going to look at in our common story in Ephesians chapter 2. And let me tell you real quick why I think that's important, because your story defines who you are. Right, It shapes how you think about your experiences, how you think about your identity, and so we want to let Scripture shape that. So turn with me to Ephesians 2. Uh, you may have done that already because he read, and I want to reread the first three verses, and we'll think about the first scene in our common story. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's start with scene one. We'll walk through our common story in scene. Scene one is the funeral. Those verses, the funeral. And that's strange because stories don't usually start with funerals. Right. That's usually how we think of stories ending. And uh, for those of us in this room who've ever lost a friend, who've ever lost a loved one, we know that funerals are hard. Right. It, it, it feels wrong. There's just this innate sense in us that death is unnatural, that that's not how it's supposed to be and that, that we should be mourning. And the kind of death that Paul talks about here, the spiritual death, is also a cause for mourning. And he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. That's why the story begins. He speaks to the Ephesian Christians really plainly about their past because he doesn't want them for a second to be uh, deceived about how serious the condition was that they were in. He's almost like a doctor diagnosing what used to be wrong with us. He doesn't want them for a moment to think and to be deceived that they were just a little confused in their sins or that they were just a little sick in their sins. He wants to be clear, you were dead in your sins. And being dead in our sins doesn't mean there's nothing good that we can ever do, but that we can't, in connection to God, do things that please God. So think about physical death for a second, right? In physical death, right, you, you don't have life. You can't respond to anybody. You can't interact. It means you lose connection with your loved one. That's part of why it's so, so grieving. So when we start to talk about spiritual death, it's similar in that we have no spiritual life. We can't respond to God. We can't please God. We have no connection to God. We're utterly separated from the God that made us, and that's a tragic thing, which is why it's even worse than 
physical death. And here's the thing. When Scripture talks about our relationship to sin before we know God, it uses uh, words that says we're deaf in sin. It says we're blind in sin. It says we're lost in sin. We're dead in sin. And you notice in all of these descriptions of our relationship with sin, we're left utterly helpless. Right? Inflicted by it. One of our problems with sin is that we treat sin not like it's something that blinds us and deafens us and enslaves us. We treat it like it's our crazy, eclectic friend. Like that friend when you was growing up, your parents told you not to hang around. Like when I was five, there was this kid in my school named Michael Mikalinka. It's a real person, real name. <laughs> One of these days, he's going to be somewhere where I'm preaching. And he's going to be like, you talking about me? But uh, I remember my parents being like, don't hang out with him. That kid is bad. And he's going to influence you. Don't hang out with him. And so what I did was I was like, okay. And then I still hung out with him just when they weren't around. And that's how we treat sin sometimes. Like, I know something's supposed to be wrong with this, but, you know, I'm going to just hang out with him when nobody's looking. And the problem with that perspective is the way that the Bible talks about sin helps us to see that sin doesn't make friends. Sin takes captives. Sin is not a crazy, eclectic friend. It's a torturer. Sin is a slave master. Sin is a terrorist, not something to be played with, something to be fleed because your soul depends on it. When the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't talk about it in the casual way that we are. And one of the things that means is if we're all born dead in sin, it means we're much worse off than we often assume. Sometimes we assume that all of us are just really good people, but if we get thrown in crazy circumstances, we might make weird choices. The way we think of ourselves often is kind of like this. Uh, I have a friend named Jacob. Somebody gave both of us the same pair of sneakers, very nice shoe. After a month, my, my sneakers still look pristine. I wore them, but they still look pristine and clean because I respect the masterpiece that is a beautiful shoe, a beautiful sneaker. <laughs> You want to talk about sneakers after the service, let me know. My friend, on the other hand, his shoe after a month looked like he wore them on the battlefield. They looked terrible. The leather was all super creased. The suede was stained. It looked like he drove in his car and just drug one foot out the door across the concrete because they weren't such. I was like, how did you, how did that even happen? What were you doing? And someone may say, well, yeah, I mean, it's, the shoe is really good. It's just one was in this situation and one was in uh, a bad situation. That, that's people. You just never know what situation you end up in. But that's not how the Bible talks about us. We're not just perfect and we could get messed up in a situation. A better illustration of who we are as people is like a defective phone. Like it looks fine on the outside, but it doesn't matter whose hands you put it in. It's going to mess up at some point because it is a messed up phone at its core. It's not going to work properly. That's how the Bible talks about us and our sin because we're born dead in our sin. It doesn't matter if we're born in the hood. It doesn't matter if we're born in the suburbs. It doesn't matter if we're born overseas. Wherever we are, we will sin because at our core, we are sinners. And until we understand and we see ourselves rightly, we understand what people are, we're not going to be able to think about how to proceed correctly. Paul wants them to know that they were dead in their sins. And one of the ways that I know and I can prove this is there was a study recently that 100 out of 100 people sinned. That study was done by me, just asking people. But that's just the reality. Everyone you know sins. There's no, you're not going to have the baby that ends up being perfect. You don't know any perfect people. Just all of us are sinners. And it's one of the truths in Scripture that's just self-evidently, you can just see it. All of us are sinners. And parents, this is one of the reasons we shouldn't be surprised that our kids sin. You don't, we don't have to teach them to sin, right? 
So I have a four-year-old, and sometimes I'm like, who told you that? Like, how? My daughter lied to me the other day. She took some scissors. My son came and snitched on him because that's the stage. He's in a snitching stage right now. And he came and he told me. That was a good thing to tell me. I said, Sailor, did you take these scissors and play with them? She was like, no. I said, but how did they get here? Cute? I'm like, he's standing right here. You can't. That's not how lying works. I don't. You can tell nobody taught her how to lie because she don't do it right. She doesn't know how to do it. But no one taught her to do that. It's just in her that she thinks that's what she's supposed to do and that's what's best. That's what's wrong with our hearts. We think, oh, that's just humans. But we shouldn't think that it's normal, that in our hearts we naturally tend towards and think the right thing to do is the very thing that put Jesus on the cross, the very thing that God hates. Sin is wrong and all of us do it. So Paul's going to keep going. He's going to give us a little more detail about what this looked like in our lives. Verse, he's talking about those sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. He gives us a little more detail about what it looked like. He said we're, we're followers. Followers of what? The ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So he talks about the ways of this world. He's not just talking about like the earth or people on earth. When he talks about the ways of this world, he means this evil age we live in, right? This way of thinking and this way of living that's in rebellion towards God. That's how he uses world. That's how Apostle John uses his word world. That's what he means. So sometimes when people say worldly, they just mean like somebody I know that's not a Christian wore those same genes. That's worldly. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this way of thinking and way of living that's in rebellion towards God. And he also begins, uh, he says, uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, we follow him. And he tells us who that ruler of the kingdom of the air is, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And that spirit that's at work in those who are disobedient is Satan. And that's scary to think about being a follower of Satan you know, it's, it's even scarier. We often think about God working in us. We don't ever think that Satan would have worked in us. But he's saying we used to follow Satan and be among those who, were, uh, who Satan was working in. And the reason that scares us is because when we think satanic or demonic, we, we think uh, Ouija boards or we think like witchcraft, but we don't think. But I want you to know there is nothing more satanic or Satan-like than plain old rebelling against God. That, that's satanic. That, that's Satan-like. And there's some sins that are just clear to all of us that are satanic. So, you know, like one thing that comes to mind is, you know, like mass shootings that we can't make sense of. Uh, you know, one of them that was in a church last year in, in a church in Charleston where a guy went to the Bible study, this uh, historic, well-known black church, went to the Bible study, and he sat and listened to them talk about the Bible with each other and love one another, and bear one another's burdens. And then after sitting there for an hour, looking people in their faces, after that, he, he got up, he started screaming racial slurs, and he began to shoot all of those people individually, leaving one person saying, I'm leaving you so that you can tell people about it. And when we hear something like that, there's kind of a collective shock that happens among all of us, where all of us understand, no, that's evil, that, that's satanic. And that same week that that happened, I was studying this text and I thought, some things seem satanic and demonic because they are. And when it's things like that, we're able to see it clearly. And so those of us in this room, none of us are guilty of that kind of heinous act. But murder isn't the only sin that's satanic or that's Satan-like. 
right? It's not just murder. Our pride is Satan-like in the way that it puts ourselves above God. And our lust is Satan-like in the way that we devalue creatures made in the image of God and treat them as 3D images just to gawk it. And our impatience is Satan-like in the way that we don't trust God and we don't trust his timing and want to do it all way instead. All sin is Satan-like and it's Satan's influence. Sin is ugly and we should see it that way. Look at verse 3. Talking about those who are disobedient, he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. So he talked about the world. He talked about the devil. And now he's going to talk about our own flesh, saying we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil conspire together so that instead of submitting to God, we rebel against him. And the thing we don't like about hearing about the cravings of our flesh that we're submitting to is we love to blame other people for our sin. We love to say, now the world made me do that. And no, 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 it was the devil that made me do that. I'm good. But Paul is going to remind us we're submitting to the very cravings of our own flesh, right? The devil is the father of lies. The world likes to spread lies and our flesh loves those lies. The world and the devil, right? There's a fire burning within us, this fire of rebellion to God. The world and the devil are just the gasoline poured on that fire. So Paul is telling us there are these three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspiring against us, and we rebel against God willingly. And how does God feel about that? What does God think about our deadness, our rebellion, our alienation? He says we're deserving of God's wrath. That's God's anger, his, his fury at sin. And because we, this is why it's important to understand that we're not just good people who mess up sometimes, but that there's something wrong that's at our core. Because the Bible says we are deserving of God's wrath. Sin is ugly and God hates it, right? Just like we would expect the judge to put, to give a sentence to a criminal that they deserve, God is a good judge and the worst crime in all the universe is rebellion against the God who made us. Spitting in his face, not trusting him, going against him. And we're deserving of his judgment. And we'll face that judgment unless there's someone who can pay for our sins and wipe our slate clean. So somebody may say, Trip, you were talking about our story, and I thought this was going to be a happy sermon. Then you went into this depressing thing about how sinful we are. And the first thing I want to say is, Paul said that, so blame Paul, not me. That's in the text, that's the Bible. But the other thing is, the reason I think Paul brings that up is because it's important for us to remember that, not to ignore that part of our past. That would be a problem, right? There's some people who like get big and they came from a hard neighborhood or something and then they get real big and people are like, man, you forget where you came from. You think you're better than us now, right? Because people end up being arrogant and don't think they're on the same level as people anymore. Well, in the same way, if we forget where we came from, that we were dead in our sins, that leads to a kind of arrogance and pride and self-righteousness which is what people think of Christians anyway. Those are those people who think they're better than us. But when we remember that we were dead in our sins, it doesn't allow us to just look our nose down on people as if any righteousness in us is something we produce. We understand I was dead in my sin. So any spiritual life that resides in me is because of God and not me. And that helps us to love people instead of just judging people as if we're better than them somehow. Right. This helps us not to forget where we came from. And I think that's part of the reason Paul brings it up. But not only that, 
If you don't remember you were dead in your sins, you're not going to be as joyful that the Lord Jesus raised us from the dead. All right. So let's look at scene two. Scene two is our rebirth. Scene two is our rebirth. I'm going to read verses four to seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The second part, the scene two, is where everything shifts really dramatically. It's the twist that we weren't expecting. It's that suspenseful scene that all the movie critics would write about. Uh, this is where the story gets really good. It's unreal and hard to believe that these really dead people doing really bad things, following a really bad way, now have new life. A lot of times when people talk about a born-again Christian, there's a certain picture that pops in their head that's like, oh, that's a certain kind of Christian. That's maybe like the like ones who like really read the Bible and go to church and maybe like the Republican Christians. So that's the real concern. But the, Bi the Bible doesn't have like two categories of Christians. A born again Christian isn't like a super holy Christian. You're either dead in your sins or you're a born again Christian. Right. And so this is why I'm saying this is our common story. If we're in Christ and we've been raised from the dead by Jesus. And so after saying so much about the horrible state we're in now, he's going to talk about this turn of events. And you notice how he talks about it. It begins with two words, but God. So like all of this stuff, but God. We know how contractions work in the English language. You say, but, then it kind of changes what you just talked about. Like this happened, but then this happened. Something that does something about that. And you notice when he talks about what changed, the contrast, he's not going to talk about something else you did. What we contributed to the situation disobedience and rebellion. But what did God do? He doesn't say all these bad things, but then you got your act together. He doesn't say you deserve wrath, but your mom took you to church. He doesn't say everything was bad, but then a Christian rapper came to your church. He doesn't say that. What he says is, what he highlights is not our action, but God's action. But God, but God did something. We went bad shape, but God did something. He made us alive. And so this is another point where we have different particulars of our story, different sins and transgressions we were caught up in. You may be thinking about them right now. Think about the sins and transgressions we think we walked in before knowing Christ. The amazing thing is, no matter what we put at the beginning of that sentence, the but God does the same thing about it, right? So we could say, you know what? Um, I was living my life in love with money, but God and he's arrested. But, but I slept around a lot, but God, and it's over and done with. No matter what we put at the beginning of that sentence, I did terrible things, but God, no matter what it is, what God did will take care of it. And that's good news because there's not this class of sinners that God can't save or sins that are so bad that God can never save you from them. God's grace is strong enough to erase anything at the beginning of that sentence, right? He's talking about God's actions. God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So let's talk about God's actions here. What God did, made us alive. What can a dead man do for himself? Nothing. If you're dead, you're dead. You can't respond to anybody. You can't change your death. You can't do anything. I mean, we, we know about Lazarus in the Bible, right? 
Lazarus, all of us are familiar with him, and we're not familiar with him because of what he did, right? The only thing Lazarus did was die. I'm sure he did some uh, important stuff before that, but what we know him for, he died. Why is the story special? Why do we know about it? Because of what Jesus did, because Jesus heard he died, and he showed up, and when Jesus said he was asleep, people laughed at him. They didn't understand this was the same son of God who holds the universe together by the word of his power, and so creation responds to him. And so Jesus says, get up, and Lazarus gets up. And the reason we know that story and we know who Lazarus is is because of what Christ did. And in the same way, the thing that's significant about your story is not the things that you did, but what Jesus has done and then what Jesus does through you. So this is even why when we, when we share our testimony with people, do not let your testimony only be. So I went to this thing one time and this lady got up there and she did have a powerful testimony. But the only thing she talked about was the horrible things she did before. And she talked about, you know, I was on drugs and I did all of this. And then she was like, but then, you know, uh, I changed and now I'm doing good and I have a job and all of this. And I thought, if I was to listen to that testimony, I would have no idea that it's the grace of God that changes people. Because what I heard was there was a lady and now she's doing better. Let me tell you, the most significant thing about your story is not what you did to change your life, but what God did to change your life. So when you tell someone, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, it does no good to talk about how horrible you were if you don't tell them about the Jesus who can do something about it. That's the powerful part of our stories. That's why we know who Lazarus is. He raised him from the dead, and God has raised us from the dead. He's given us spiritual life. So all that other stuff we talked about, not able to please God, we can please God now. Not able to respond to God, we can respond to God now. No connection to God, we're connected to God now, right? Now we're adapted into this family now. Now we're broken free from the power of sin. Like God has given us new life. He's given us new capacity for joy, new taste buds. Before I was a Christian, I used to try to read the Bible, and I hated it. It didn't make no sense to me. I didn't care about what I was reading. God gave me new life, and he gave me new eyes, and stuff started to matter. God, when God gives us new life, he, he changes stuff, and, and we begin to walk in it. And he says specifically that he made us alive together with Christ. He talks about being seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He does this in uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians 2. He says in Christ over and over again. And the reason that's important for us to remember is sometimes we want God's blessings without knowing where God gives them to us. So it's almost like you're, you're, you're in a storm and it's hailing and it's thundering and you want to get in shelter. You want to get in the house. Shelter's in the house. Uh, you want to be dry in the house. Everything is there. You want to be in that sphere where the good stuff is. Well, in Christ is that place that we need to be. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the place to get the, the most incredible things that God offers, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, all of those things, the place you need to be to get that is not in a church building. It's not at a Christian concert. The place you need to be for that is in Christ. And the way we can be placed in Christ is by putting our faith in Christ. Receiving what Christ has given us. These, these things have been given to us in Christ. And someone may say, well, why would God do that? What I love about this text is it points to God's character and God's actions. Well, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God has great love for us. You know, there's some of us sometimes who talk about our love for people a lot, but we don't ever show it in our actions. And then there's a lot of us who we love people with our actions, but we never verbalize it. 
Like a lot of us, maybe our dads were this way or maybe we're dads who are this way now. You know, it's like, I know he loves me because of what he shows, but he never says it. Well, I want you to know the God of Scripture is a God who does both incredibly well. God is over and over again in Scripture telling us how much he loves us, how committed to us he is. He doesn't just love us, but it's the great love with which he loves us. He has great love for us. Almost like that boyfriend who can't stop telling his girlfriend he loves her so much just all the time telling her, like, don't hang up, I love you. That's how God is, except less awkward. And then not only does he say it with his, his words, but he shows it with his actions. None of us could ever say, they say God loves me, but I can't tell. Because scripture is really clear, God showed his love for us and that Christ died while we were still sinners, while we still hated him, while we still spat in his face, while we still rebelled, God sent his son to die for us. God not only shows his love with his words, but with his actions. That's great love he's loved us with. But then it also talks about his riches in grace and mercy. Do y'all know that God is rich in grace and mercy? His account of grace and mercy is never withdrawn. He never runs out. He never sees someone like, I don't know, they need a lot of grace and mercy. And the way my account is looking right now, no, God is rich in grace and mercy. There are two kinds of rich people. There are rich people who are real flashy with their riches. Like they want you to know they're rich. Like this is every rapper you've ever seen besides me. And they'll wear like seven chains and all the most expensive clothes. They're like, what time is it? You tell me on my Rolex, right? They just want you to know they're rich. Real flashy with it. They want everyone to know. And then there's like a more low-key rich person who you talk to them, you never know they're rich. This is like some of those tech billionaires and they you know, have on some cargo khakis and like some flip-flops and like an old, well, I don't want to describe anybody's what they have on right now, but they would be, they would just, you can't tell they're rich is the point. You talk to them, you would never know they're rich. They don't carry themselves like that. Well, I want you to know God is that first kind of rich person, where he's not only content to be rich in grace and mercy, but he also wants to show it off. That's what he says right here in the text, the reason he did it. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, how? And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is not only rich in grace and mercy, he wants to show it off. He wants us to know how rich in grace and mercy he is. And those flashy rich people, they often are trying to use that to get friends or to meet new people and be like, hey, look at all I got. You're trying to talk. That's what they do. And God, in a similar fashion, says, look at me. I'm rich in grace and mercy. He wants to show it off. And usually when people are self-centered and they draw all the attention to themselves, that's bad. Because, you know, if I do that, I'm not the center of the universe. Right? I should not be drawing all the attention to myself. That's arrogant. God actually is the center of the universe. So it's a good thing that he draws the attention to himself. It's a good thing he's self-centered because the universe actually revolves around him. Right? So there are times when we are so distracted by other stuff that looks big and amazing, it is so gracious of God to say, look at me. Look at my grace and look at my mercy. I'm better than anything else that you would spend your life chasing after. That's good of God to do that. There's some of us in here today who are being distracted by other things. And I want to ask you, who in your life or that you've ever met loves you like this? There is no love that's anywhere close to comparable to the love of God in Christ. That he would give his son for us while we still hated him. You know, who better is there to chase after than, than God himself? The love he's shown us is like no other love that we can imagine. He's rich and grace and mercy. And if you don't know Jesus, I don't want you to be stuck in scene one. 
right? I want to celebrate with you that God gives new life in Jesus, and all of us can have this new life with faith in Christ. And how do we get there? We'll talk about that in this next point. Last scene, number three, is the reason. Scene three is the reason. It's our last scene. And, and this scene is kind of like, a, you remember you used to buy a DVD and they had like the director's cut commentary and they put it on the back of the box like it's a bonus, like anybody wants to watch that. It's really like the movie again with the director talking over it. No one cares. But what they're doing is they're telling you why they did things the way they did and they're telling you how they did it. And that's what this last section of this verse is like. What God's told us, the incredible things he's done in Christ, given us new life. And in this one, he's going to tell us how he did it and why he did it. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, we, for some reason, have this strange assumption. Once we figure out we're not good enough to just get our way into heaven, well, we say, oh, so I just need to get good or I just need to do more good stuff. I need to go to church more and do all of these things so that God will accept me. When the Bible tells us if God's going to accept us and save us, it's not going to be because of the good things we do. That's the point. We're not just good enough to just make it. I mean, it has to be a gift from him. That's why he talks about it by grace. Now, grace is a uh, word that we like to throw around as Christians a lot and often don't think about what it means. Um, grace is uh, basically charity. That word actually comes from the Greek word for grace, charity. Charity is when somebody has done nothing for you, hasn't deserved something for you necessarily, and you just give something to them freely. You just give, right? That, that's a gift. It's, it's charity. That's what God has done in Christ. And it's hard for us to, to grasp because the way we used to get in stuff, we used to get in stuff that we did something for. So the thing about our jobs, we get wages. A wage is you work this many hours and you get paid this much per hour, however it is, and you get paid for what the work that you did, right? And that's a good thing, and that's how work works. But salvation is not a wage. That's not how it works. Or we think of awards, like you played basketball really good in high school and you got the MVP award, or maybe you got a participation award. That's not real. That's fake. That's not a real award. You didn't earn that. But if you like played really good, you get this award because of what you did. You played well. Your achievements merited you this award. There's wages and there's awards. None of those are what salvation is like. Salvation is a gift. A gift is like when you woke up on Christmas morning and there were uh, gifts under the tree and you were a terrible person all year and your parents forgot about that and gave you some gifts. You did nothing good to earn those gifts. You just woke up and they were there. Your contribution was showing up and seeing that the gift was there. And when it comes to our salvation in Jesus, our contribution to it is only receiving. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We receive. And the word that the Bible uses for that receiving of that gift is faith. Faith is another word we misunderstand. Sometimes we think faith is just believing something just because we would like it to happen. Like, I didn't go to work this week or this whole month, but I just, I got faith I'm going to be able to pay my bills. That's not faith, that's foolishness, okay? <laughs> and when it comes to stuff with God, we, th we think the same way. It's like, I'm believing God uh, for this. I, I think I'm going to have a Lamborghini. It's like, God didn't say that right? Biblical faith is not just believing something that you hope will happen. It's believing that God will do what he said he would do. 
It's believing that God will keep his promises. And so this kind of faith in this passage, it's believing that we were sinners and Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He's the son of God. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life we could never live. And then when he was killed, he was paying for our sins, paying the debt, that judgment, that wrath we deserve that we talked about. Jesus took that for us on the cross, and then he rose from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over the devil, and he said, hey, if you trust me, follow me, I will give you eternal life. Faith is saying, I know I can't get eternal life, so when Jesus offers to give it, I'll take it from him. I'll trust that he can give me this, right? I'll trust that this sin that got me in trouble, that I should let go, I should let go of that, and I should grab a hold of Christ and this free gift he's given me. Salvation is a gift. It's by grace through faith. You know, faith is not only just saying, yes, I agree to some facts, but it's trusting those facts. It's trusting if Jesus is my Lord, if Jesus is actually the Savior, right, faith that doesn't affect your life isn't really faith. If you really believe it, it affects the way that you live your life. Salvation is by faith, through faith. Um, and so somebody may ask the question then, is salvation free? Is salvation free? And I think the way I would answer that question is yes and no. Salvation is free of charge, but it's not free of cost, right? Salvation is free in a sense we don't have to pay anything for it. We don't have to earn it to receive it, but it is very costly. It's costly in the sense that it costs Jesus everything, right? It costs the father his son. It was costly. Someone paid for it. You just didn't pay for it. And salvation is also costly in the sense that after you receive it, it is going to cost you something. It does mean you're going to have to continue to repent of your sins. It does mean you're going to have to take up your cross to follow Jesus. It does mean you're going to have to build relationships with people that it's awkward at first with because they're different than you, but you want to love them because God has called you to do that, right? It is going to mean that you have to share with Jesus with people, even though it's an awkward conversation. It is going to cost you something. And that's harder for us to grasp because we don't live in a place or in an age where people are often getting killed for their faith in Jesus. It's clearly costly to them. Salvation is free, but it's also costly, primarily to God and that he gave his son for us. And that brings me to the, to the final verse, and, we, and we'll end talking about this. Um, he's been so clear the whole time. It's not works. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. God did it. Not works. Works are not what makes God have a relationship with us. But once we have that relationship with God, some good works should be showing up, right? This is what he says, last verse in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, meaning reborn in Christ, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's saying one of the reasons God gave you new life in Christ is for good works, Right. So it is very strange if we're going to say, I don't have to earn my salvation, so I don't even have to do anything good. When God is saying, that's the reason I saved you in part is so you would do good works. So if you look at my kids, uh, my son, Q, my daughter, Sailor, you look at them, you say, man, those are Tripp's kids. They kind of have his face, his weirdly high cheekbones. That, that looks like him. And in the same way, when God adopts us as his sons and daughters, he wants us to look like him. We're made in his image, then we sinned and got away from that. And God saves us and he gives us new life so that we gradually look more and more like him. And so he saves us for these good works 
so that everywhere that we go, we should be doing God-like things. We should be loving people like God does. We should be showing mercy like God does. We should be showing people grace like God does. Some of us uh, have a pattern of bitterness and unforgiveness that could not be more or less like the God who showed us mercy and forgiveness. Right? God has saved us so that we would show that same mercy and forgiveness. God created us so there would be a lot of little God-like people running around who live and act like him. We sinned. God has saved us so that we can be going around this world proclaiming the goodness of God, showing people what God is like. So I want to encourage you to this week, think about who are people in your life, whether that's co-workers, whether that's family, whether that's friends, whether that's neighbors who live across the street, to be thinking intentionally, what are some things that I can do? What are some ways I can interact with them that look like the God who saved me? What are some good works? What are some ways I can meet their needs? What are some ways I can encourage them? Because that's one of the reasons God has saved you, so that you would do good works. I don't know all of you that well. This is the first time I've seen most of your faces, but I know what the main bullet points in your story are if you're in Christ. You were dead in your sins, but you were raised to new life by God, by grace through faith, in order that you would do good works. And my prayer is that God would give you grace to walk in that freedom of that new life uh, and also to walk in those good works and to look like him. Amen. 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 All right, let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you in Jesus' name, uh, God, with a lot of uh, gratitude in our hearts, Father. You've been so good to us, God, and we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, without your word, we wouldn't really know how to interpret all the events that have happened to us in our lives. We wouldn't know uh, the depth of our sin, and we wouldn't know the depth of your grace, Father. Thank you for giving us new life, God. Father, I pray for my friends in here that know Jesus, that you would help them to look more and more like Jesus. My friends in here who don't know Jesus, uh, God, we pray that you would help them to see him for who he is and you'd give them new life, you'd save them. Father, we, we pray you'd be with Stonegate, God, that you would give them grace um, to be a church that looks like God, a church full of people who are doing good works. God, and we pray your gospel would always be preached and would bear fruit here. Uh, Father, and we pray we'd walk in those good works you've prepared for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.